Hi everyone. I just wanted to address my near radio silence. Um, basically, I moved to France and I left pretty much everything that I used to record the podcast behind because I just didn't have the space to take it and I didn't think it was going to be a priority uh, when I got here and I guess it hasn't been. So I haven't been able to record any intros properly. I'm even recording this on my phone now and it is what it is. But I'm safe and sound and really enjoying my life here. You will be happy to know. And I have an amazing episode for you today. It is with the incredible Dr. Julia Martins. And yeah, I just geek out about gender history and how men ruin childbirth. How men ruin childbirth. Well, I'm being a bit dramatic there, but it's a great episode. We talk all about medical history and secrets and translations and yeah this is a good one if you're a bit of a history nerd like me cool i hope you enjoy thank you so much again to julia and i will see you next time bye for having me thank you for being here how's your day been it's been great thank you just happy that you know the sun's out and we can enjoy some nice weather yeah me too uh although i've been working inside today so didn't get a good chance but enough about me we are here to talk everything you and what you get up to so for (laughs) those that don't know you could you say a little bit about yourself uh yeah sure so um so i'm a historian of gender and medicine and I'm fascinated by the way that people understood the, the human body in the past with all, all the messiness and all its beauty, vulnerabilities, everything. And so I'm interested in the way we conceptualize the body and how that has changed through time. So the way we construct um, categories such as um, health, illness, sex, gender, all of that is deeply shaped by our culture. And and as a feminist, I'm interested in how these attitudes people had about the body in the past can shape how we understand the body today. So in my work, I try to combine historical research with the discussions that we are having in the present, especially within feminism. Um, so, for instance, with all that's been happening in terms of uh, reproductive rights being restricted and, you know, abortion rights being gained, uh, such as in Mexico recently. I find it very useful to question these categories. So what do we understand as abortion, for instance? You know, it's something that has changed through history and depending on the way the body was understood and reproduction was understood. And oftentimes people who we might have thought would have been very strict about it in the past were actually more, you know, quote unquote progressive than many people today. So, so yeah, so that's me sort of trying to combine history and feminism by focusing on the body. And yeah, and besides that, um, I'm also a mom. I had my daughter right before the first lockdown, which was not fun. <laughs> it was quite tricky. And yeah, and, and I love reading. I have a book club. But yeah, that's it. <laughs> I'm so excited to talk to you because this is like right up my street. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're so right. You know, I always forget how many things are um, are like con- conceptions, you know, like we mm-hmm. make, we've all made them up. They're like... As in, like, abortion is 
a thing that we've like you know uh, it, obviously yes. it's like a f- real physical thing that happens but the mm-hmm. way that we talk about it the way we conceptualize it is constructed right definitely so, yeah it's so interesting we'll go into all that but I have to ask mm-hmm. you the first question that I ask everyone mm-hmm. which is what's something that's made an impression on you recently Oh, so I recently read um, Disobedient by Elizabeth Fremantle and that I, I found it so fascinating. So it's it's a novel about uh, the life of the rena- um, Renaissance artist Artemisia Gentileschi. And I've always loved her work and I knew some of her story as, as you know, a female artist in a very male art world and also as a rape survivor who, you know, very bravely faced the court and everything and, you know, was very public about everything but through the book the writing in the book is just so vivid the story is so beautifully told and there's just so much empathy for her for Artemisia in the novel and it really struck me you know it was one of those books that you kind of want to read slowly and really savor it and at the same time while you're trying to make it last you also can't put it down so Mm. yeah so that was like something that really made an impression on me lately and I highly recommend I'm telling everyone go read it it's so good of course I'll put it in the show notes (laughs) so that everyone knows to go and check it out yeah Um, but I want to get into more like your work and how you got there but also start talking about gender history I guess more generally and because I think you know this is me coming from a history background anyway I Mm. I'm trying not to make too many assumptions about the audience as well here um but like history you're kind of taught when you go to university is like written by a certain type of person Mm -hmm. and throughout history it's a certain type of story that's get that keeps getting retold so I just think it's important to talk about what gender history is you know why is it so important and do you feel like people are learning enough gender history at the moment uh I don't think so no not at all (laughs) uh I don't know I think so history isn't just you know a list of facts and dates and names and things to memorize although I think it often feels that way when we're at school, which is very sad. Uh, But um, studying history means interpreting the primary documents that we have, right? So the sources that we have available. So like, and in Artemisia Gentileschi's case, like in the novel, um, we we have the courts, the court records all the time. We have her paintings. We have all these like letters and journals and documents about what was happening, you know, to her. So what we as historians um, have to try and do is interpret these sources to the best of our ability with the help of what other historians have been writing as well. And um, we can interpret these sources by all kinds of different lenses. And that's how social history, cultural history, gender history were all born. But the way that children are often taught history tends to be very Eurocentric, focusing on, you know, white, cis, heterosexual men. Like you said, it's some stories that get to be told. And, you know, just to give an idea, so I'm Brazilian, and most of my history lessons at school involve people like Henry VIII, which obviously someone very important, okay, but we were in Brazil. So it's, you know, that's not to say that it's not important to study the the tutors, you know, it's just that we shouldn't limit ourselves to those stories, you know, especially to royalty. But, you know, coming back to the idea uh, of gender history, so even if you are interested in someone like Henry VIII, you can study him through the lens of gender. So you can think, how central was his masculinity to shaping his reign? How was the issue with 
his virility um, central. How was that important, especially with the whole issue of having, you know, a male heir? You know, so it's, you can use that lens to talk about even the people who have very traditionally been the focus of, you know, of uh, of history. You can sort of try to read that in a different way. And also recently, there has been a lot of interesting debates um, about if we're thinking about Henry Diet, just the example that came to my mind. There has been a lot of debate about him uh, coming from disability scholars. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, because he had a hunting accident and he and some scholars have said after that he was disabled and other people were very bothered by that use of the term, which, you know, it's not something I'll get you know into. But the idea that you can study someone like him through a lens of, you know, disability studies. And even if it's someone then as well researched and as well known as him, there are always new angles and new ways of reading the sources. And and yet most of us do grow up learning a very limited history, memorizing dates and battles and names of kings and queens, which I found very annoying. It's it's not particularly interesting, I think. I don't think. And in the case of gender history in particular, the issue is that women, trans people, non-binary people, queer folks in general, they are usually underrepresented in historical narratives to begin with. They're often just erased from the conversation. So going back to, to Artemisa Gentileschi, the, the artist, even though she's been on the she's been on the limelight recently, this past few years, I'd say, her name is still not as well known as, you know, Leonardo da Vinci or Michelangelo. It's definitely not on the same level. And and there, you know, enters, you know, gender history. So I think that's why it's so crucial to be able to include people who have been traditionally left out of the way we write history. And so it has a political relevance. It legitimizes groups that are still marginalized today. So I think it's particularly useful about, you know, in the sense of like giving people back their stories and their past. And that's important because we know how central memory is to shaping our sense of belonging in community. So in my case, when I was in school learning about the French Revolution, it was really hard to see how that was relevant to my life in, you know, growing up in Brazil. But at the same time, when when the teachers would bring stories, they would uncover the stories of people who have traditionally been forgotten. Then I found much more meaning, such as, you know, the 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 seamstress who were involved, you know, in the French Revolution, not just about like the you know, the white male leaders and all of that. And and that's why I'm so interested in the history of the body, because, you know, we can talk about Henry VIII's problems, you know, succession and all of that from a political, economic, all kinds of, of angles. But what I'm interested in is the anonymous midwives that, you know, helped his wives have their babies, the complicated births and all of that. Things like how did people manage like period pains or how did they feed babies? How did people clean their bodies? That kind of thing. Because thinking about the body really, to me at least, it really helps bring these stories like to life and mm. it helps us write a kind of history that is not only inclusive but it speaks directly to what it means you know to be human to have a body and the daily struggles that come with it yeah yeah 100 oh god it's just like you get me excited to like learn about history <laughs> and read it all again oh, I'm I, glad. I used to find history so much more compelling when i felt like i could relate to the people that i was learning about you know 
Um, yeah. And also I think it's so interesting to have gender history as a lens rather than just mm-hmm. like, let's try and just slot women back into these old yeah. stories. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I mean, of course you do, obviously, because you have a PhD in it. But <laughs> <laughs> I also wanted to talk a bit about like the, the I guess, the history of gender history. How mm-hmm. did it come about that people were like, this is really important, we should study history in this way? Yeah, that's such an important uh, question. So before gender history, there was women's history, right? Mm. So with the second, the second wave of feminism in the 60s, 70s, feminist academics really started pushing for departments, for university departments to open courses focused on women, you know, um, women's art, history, all of that. And women's studies, um, you know, as, as a concept appeared and women's history was a part of that. So these scholars, they made incredible progress in writing women back into history and they were deeply influenced by social and cultural history as well as you know, <clears throat> feminist philosophy and politics and the main the, i think the main contribution uh, from that period is the idea of sex as being biological and gender and femininity being culturally constructed which you know uh, is something that famously simone de beauvoir had written that you know one isn't born a woman but rather one becomes a woman and there was a lot of pushback back then against having women's studies in universities. And some critics said that, you know, that this field was just too niche or not relevant enough, even though literally more than half of the people on the planet are women. And eventually, you know, though, eventually these academics, they came to influence many other fields, not just within history and the humanities. And in any case, there was also this um, criticism against this binary way of writing history, which was then fueled by other criticisms that were waved at second wave feminists. Because in this period, the focus on women exclusively, well, by definition, it excluded other people, right? So even though it was important to open some some room, some space, create some space for women, it was still a very white uh, cis feminism in a way so uh, it tended to ignore the issues of class and race not to mention the queer community so for many people working in the field they their studies they gradually expanded and they became more inclusive especially because of black feminists who who were really 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 important in the period and the lgbt community and especially because right after this period in the 80s and the 90s through the AIDS crisis gay people were more visible than they had arguably ever been and so in universities courses focusing on gender studies started to appear expanding on the idea of women's studies including the subfield you know the subcategory of gender history and thinking in terms of gender rather than than women's history doesn't mean that we're erasing women or not studying women anymore. It's basically what I do. But it just releases us of this binary way of thinking. It opens space for queer folks, for non-binary people. And it's a more inclusive, intersectional framework through which we can think of history. It's it's just a more interesting lens, I think. And contrary to to what some critics uh, have said about it, that is limiting it's it's really not so if you go back to you know henry VIII, the most cliche example ever um 
gender history can be so so crucial in understanding him and his politics. So if, if you think about all all his issues with having a male heir and virility, and you know his hunting accident, and and how he was arguably not feeling as manly, and you know he couldn't walk properly, and all of that, it was a hard period in his life. It's also the time when the infamous, you know, the gigantic cod pieces were popular in fashion. So, you know, the um, triangular shaped fashion yeah, accessory yeah, yeah, you know, that yeah. would cover men's um, parts, yeah. <laughs> you know. So it, it, that's the kind of thing that, you know, I'm not saying, you know, he had issues, hence this was in, in terms of fashion, but things tend to be um, connected. And the interesting thing about gender history is that it allows us to make these connections and think. Hmm, this is a time in which we are really thinking about masculinity and virility. And it's mm-hmm. interesting that men's fashion kind of reflected that. And he, Henry VIII himself, he would use gigantic cod pieces, as you can see in many portraits um, still. And, and that's why I think gender history has so much to offer, you know, to other fields for sure, but also even to the way that we study traditionally super you know male figures like Henry VIII you know yeah no a hundred percent um it as you as you said it like opens a new dimension to understanding things um and I wanted to follow up on your point when you were talking about the difference between um biological sex and gender and when I was in uni and I think we were talking about Judith Butler and Mm. And we were like, oh, you know, gender is a performance. And my jaw mm-hmm. was on the floor. I was like, yes, it yes, is. It is. <laughs> yeah. How have I never... I was like, oh, my God, I perform being a woman every day, you know? Or, mm-hmm. like, what I conceive a woman to do. And yeah. I've been... This is way off track. But I've been obsessed with the question of what what is a woman for so long. <laughs> and I'm like, it's You and everyone. Like, no, yeah, because it's so interesting to me because it's like, I don't want to be reduced to my biological parts, but then mm-hmm. also like women have a strong connection to things mm-hmm. like giving birth. And then I was like, but if a woman is just a construction, then like anyone can, like anyone can be, you know, oh. Yeah, I mean, I think obviously it's it's very, it's a very complex subject, but I I do think that it's worth thinking about it because what we understand as certain categories does change through time mm. you know and i think we're living in a time where in which we are you know rethinking some of these categories and and i think that's very interesting to see i'm curious to to see you know how we'll feel about this period in like 50 years time yeah 100% um i don't want to i don't want to go off topic but i knew i know that i wanted to ask you about your phd because when i spoke to you about it i thought it was so interesting so could you talk a bit about it especially about the idea of secrets that you studied and also like the political nature of translations i'm sure you'll go into all of that uh, right yeah sure thank you so um yeah so I spent seven years working on this PhD it was not a straightforward journey uh and you know I changed universities supervisors I I had a baby there was a pandemic was you know libraries and archives were closed it was you know a weird time I think for everyone but in terms of my own research I decided to study the ways in which you know the ways knowledge about the female body and reproduction specifically the way this knowledge changes as it spreads. So let me give you some context. So since antiquity, there had been medical texts written about the female body and about childbirth. 
things like um, conditions of women, diseases of women. And these included everything from, you know, tumors you might have in your womb to menstrual disorders to ways of producing more milk to feed your baby. And these texts were usually written by men in Greek, Latin, and Arabic. And they were very often written for men as well, especially physicians at universities, you know, from from the 11th century um, onwards. But with Johannes Gutenberg's printing press in the mid-15th century, so with the, with the printing press, everything changed because now books could be printed very quickly and very cheaply. And literacy spread, and so many booksellers started to publish vernacular languages. So that's when English and Italian rather than Latin really started to, to appear in texts. And so this new genre appeared in northern Italy, in Venice to be precise, and they were printed recipe books. So that's what I studied for my PhD. And so recipe books can be traced back to antiquity, and they are pretty much like contemporary cookbooks in a way. They have ingredients and methods to attain a specific goal. But we're not talking about, you know, cakes and bakes. We're talking about cosmetic, alchemical, and medical recipes. And when these books started to be printed in the vernacular languages, in Italian, in Venice, in the 16th century, they were bestsellers. And a part of these books, a very important part of these books, were the secrets of women, like you said, the secrets. And secrets of women were recipes about women. So recipes about the female body, about reproduction. So how to make childbirth less painful, how to provoke an abortion. Um, and these recipes, readers, both male and female, they could potentially follow in their own kitchens. So they tended to use ingredients that weren't incredible, you know, incredibly expensive or too difficult to obtain. And in terms of, of um, things you might need, usually um, an oven, you know, a few vessels and, and things would do the, the trick. So people could follow these recipes in their homes. And the thing was that booksellers outside of Venice, they realized these books were selling really well and even outside the Italian peninsula. And so they wanted to cash in on, you know, what was effectively a new trend. So publishers started having these books and the recipes about women's bodies translated into French, English, German, Spanish. But you know how the saying goes, you know, who, who tells a tale adds a tale. So this is very true for translation. No translation is neutral, you know, then and now. Translators make choices and they deeply shape the text. So just think of, you know, all the debates about Emily Wilson's translations of Homer including the very recent one she did of the of the Iliad, which I personally love, but it's very controversial. And the reason is because translators make choices, and sometimes people don't agree with those choices. But anyway, back then, translators, they had even greater freedom, much, much more freedom, I think, that they, than they would today. So they acted almost um, in, in a way, we would call them editors today, I think, in a way. So they, they, they did lots of things rather than just uh, a translation word for word, you know. They added things, they suppressed parts of the text, they corrected things, um, they improved upon the text, they changed the structure, punctuation, and they added their own recipes. If it was a physician translating a medical recipe, they might say, you know, I'll, I'll add my version of this and then you can decide or just swap the recipe with their own version of the remedy. And in that way, I think translators were really almost co-authors of these books. And so for my PhD, I was interested in seeing how these translators 
changed practical knowledge about how to manage the female body, how they censored and corrected. And my idea was that this would give me an insight into how perceptions about the female body changed across time and space. Um, so, for instance, there was one particularly problematic recipe, uh, which originally had been written in Latin. And this was an aphrodisiac as well as a um, hallucinatory formula, right? So it was called the witch's ointment, which tells you a lot. And it was said to have been used by witches in their satanic rituals. But it was also a recipe focused on female desire, female lust and agency, and especially older women's lust. Now, this recipe posed a lot of problems because, you know, the author of the book, Giambattista della Porta, he had lots of issues with the Inquisition. And he eventually published a new version of the book without the recipe. He just omitted it completely. And this formula was just deeply intertwined with all the demonological debates of the day. And mm -hmm. people were really interested in witchcraft and demonology in the 16th century. Everyone was discussing it, writing about it, reading about it. And, and the recipe was in the middle of, of all of this. And, and so translators and publishers, when, when they were working with this book, they were faced with the question of what to do with this recipe when translating the book. Some decided to remove it with no explanation. Some censored it, but told readers why they had done so. Others stood by the author, De La Porta, and the recipe and published it as it was. And, you know, this is just one example, but you can get the idea of just how entangled these questions about the female body could become with other debates of the day and how crucial was the translator's role in shaping how we understand the female body and, you know, and how that can shift. So that's the kind of thing that I, that I did. Oh my gosh, it's so interesting. And there's so many questions about it. Um, <laughs> and I remember as well, like when you study history, you learn about like, how when you read history you're reading it through your own lens and if you read a secondary mm -hmm. source you're reading it through two periods of time in history one in mm -hmm. which the time that someone else is reading it was read you know what I mean all these different mm -hmm, layers for sure. which yes. I think makes it so much more rich in itself as mm -hmm. well um but I wanted to know did you notice any secrets that still circulate today are, are they like old wives tales or is that something completely different no, it's very much related. So um, much of what was published in these books, they it came from popular culture, right? So empiric practitioners, midwives, and the authors of these books, they effectively, they collected recipes throughout their lives. They would travel and they would, the recipes would come from the most unlikely of sources, including, in their words, poor little women. Which, you know, tells you a lot about how they saw women, but it also tells you a lot that the recipes from quote-unquote, put little women, were included. So they reflect a lot of what popular medicine looked like in the period. But they also reflected very old medical Greco-Roman traditions as well. So although these books, they eventually fell out of fashion in the 18th century, but much of this knowledge does survive today in the form of, you know, what you call old wives' tales. So for instance, we know that Fanny Royal and Parsley can in fact induce abortions depending on quantity. And, you know, and that's something that they did as well. We know that fennel tea simulates milk production. It's something that I used when I had a baby. And we are still told to drink raspberry leaf tea if uh, we're over 40 weeks pregnant and ready for the baby to come out. Another thing, another thing that I did. Um, and, you know, so lots of this 
tips that we learn from mothers, grandmothers, cousins, friends, they do come from this tradition. And a lot of this knowledge does have a scientific basis. Lots of it is just insane, you know, some things you would never follow. So there are a few recipes that they sound very close to, um, to the idea most people have of, you know, witchcraft and uh, witchcraft and witches around their cauldrons and, you know, like bat wings and whatnot. So not, a, not everything survives very well, right? But lots of things do. And the reason for that is that this knowledge was shared. It was tried and tested. These remedies, they were shared among a network of female friends and family. And especially midwives, they had a central role in this network as well. So a lot of it came from just testing it in practice in people's bodies and seeing what worked or not. And in that way, we can also say that, so not only these recipes have an important role in the history of medicine, but they also shape the way that women bonded and socialized. So for instance, after childbirth, female friends and relatives would often visit the one who had just given birth and they would share a special drink with the new mother, you know, called coddle. And coddle would often appear in these recipe books. It was a medical recipe, but it was also a, a, a fun drink to have with your friends when you're celebrating your baby's birth. And I mean, it usually contained eggs, um, herbs, cinnamon, lots of sugar. It's sort of like eggnog in a way and it was meant to fortify the body after birth so lots of fats and 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 sugar but the thing about coddle is that recipes for coddle they you can study them from this pharmaceutical pharmaceutical point of view right from a very history of medicine point of view like what were the ingredients the quantities how did it work who prepared who who took it what were the the vessels the cups like etc but they are also a window into this all-female world of childbirth and the social and cultural rituals. And that's why I think, you know, these recipes are so interesting and they do survive in a way, you know, in one way or the other. I mean, after I had birth, my my doula came to visit me and see how I was doing and she brought coddle. So, you know, mm -hmm. which for me was mm -hmm. very cool. So, yeah, I think that does survive, yeah. Oh, I love that. I love that. And I think it's a perfect segue to what else I wanted to talk to you about because I don't remember much from my degree now, but I remember mm -hmm. when I did a module on medical history and my teacher was talking about midwives and mm -hmm. how basically, this is me just being a bit like, I don't know what the word is, facetious maybe, but like men yeah. just came in and ruined the whole birth and process for women because <laughs> they like invented the forcep or something and was like, it's okay. You've you've been helping each other give birth for centuries, but I'm mm -hmm. a man with a forcep, so <laughs> I got this from now. It was like, I mean, obviously, I'm just making this a bit more intense, but essentially, something of the sort happened I mean, that way. Yeah, I mean, you're you're not wrong, right? <laughs> yeah, um, but I just think it'd be great if we could talk about it, and also how when we spoke, how childbirth is different and midwifery is different around the globe, and. Um, like, which obviously it is, but I just never thought about it. Yeah, I think that's the thing with childbirth. It's it's such a miracle, but at the same time, it's just so mundane that sometimes we don't think about it. Um, and I think childbirth has just, it's just a fascinating topic, you know, for studying history. And of course, midwifery varies widely depending on time and place. 
So, for instance, if we're thinking globally, we know that in the 18th and 19th century in Uganda, women were safely delivered through cesarean sections. While in Europe, it was still very much a tricky procedure, to, you know, to say the very least. But um, and which tells you how you know different traditions developed separately and mm. how how sometimes Eurocentric perspectives can can you know can leave every can leave lots of things out and that's a shame mm. you know so even but even if we are just focused on europe and we're thinking about just britain we can say that by the 18th century the way that people gave birth was rapidly changing so traditionally like you said birth had been an all-female affair the midwives were the head of it and gradually birth was becoming increasingly medicalized Male practitioners, so physicians, surgeons, and men midwives, that was a category, they were taking over from the traditional midwives. And there are many factors that explain that shift from the way that um, midwives were licensed to the influence of the Enlightenment. And, you know, we don't really have the time to really dive into it. But one main change, like I said, uh, especially with the case of the forceps, one main change was that male practitioners could use instruments, which midwives mm. traditionally didn't. In many mid midwives, um, many oaths midwives took in the 17th and 18th century, when they were being licensed, they had to swear not to use instruments. So until then, uh, the, the physicians or surgeons or, or barbers or men midwives, they had very rarely been called by midwives to come and help them with their instruments and their when that happened so midwives would take care of the vast majority of births and they would mostly be fine but sometimes in a very complicated delivery they would call a male practitioner and they would come with their instruments which means crochets and hooks and they would use that to remove a dead fetus often in parts to save the mother so the instruments were something that women were very scared of because they they knew what it meant, right? But then with the rise of the forceps, male practitioners started promoting their services by arguing that these instruments allowed them to act in a timely manner should something go wrong and potentially save lives, mothers, you know, the mothers and the babies. But we know that's not exactly true. And the mortality rate with the use of forceps was just horrifying. But in any case, the main point I want to make, coming back to things like um, like birth positions, um, it, it il really illustrates the change. So um, midwives, traditional midwives, they relied on their hands. Touch was the main sense involved in helping a woman give birth. And that meant that birth stools, uh, you know, are giving birth on all fours, kneeling, standing up. They were all possible ways for someone to give birth and to be assisted by um, a midwife who would be kneeling or sitting down underneath and, and she would basically use her hands to help guide the baby out, to turn the baby around if, you know, if they thought it would help. But for the male practitioners with their instruments, it was all about sight, not touch. And they needed to see to properly use their tools. And that meant having women lying on their backs. So, you know, there, there are also like voyeuristic tales of what might have popularized the shift of going 
from um, birth in all kinds of positions to a lying down model of giving birth. So there's a story that uh, Louis XIV, the King of France, greatly enjoyed watching his wife and mistresses, plural, uh, giving birth to his over 20 children, if I remember correctly. So there was this voyeuristic aspect to it, for sure, which helped, you know, popularize it. But this is just one example that, um, just one example of the way in which when men took over, things really changed. You know, if you're prioritizing sight over touch, then what better position to watch a baby being born and help that, you know, help the woman and help the baby mm -hmm. than having the mother lie down on your back. You know, it's not, you're not relying on your hands. You need your eyes. You need all the, the petticoats and all, you know, all the clothes to be out of your, you know, out of your way. And, and so I think the the shift from a sort of female model to a male model, and of course we're greatly simplifying, you know, and generalizing, but it's a shift from touch to sight. I think that's, you know, that's a good way of thinking about it. Yeah, a hundred percent. And also this is not to discredit modern medicine because birth is safer no. now than it's ever been. It's just a journey getting here, you know, it's been, it's been a yes. journey. But I think that's the thing. It's not about saying that it was better then or it was horrific then, you know, and it's better now. I think we can, I think it's useful to, to look, to look to the past and, and search for inspiration of what can we do better? Because the way that we give birth now is better in lots of ways, for sure, you know, with, um, well, anesthesia, with safe cesarean sections, with people washing their hands and all of that. <laughs> that's all great. But at the same time, we have lost some things as well. We have lost some agency. We have lost a sense of community. So I think, you know, it's not about idealizing the past, but we can learn from it and ideally sort of combine different models and create something that is as safe as possible for everyone involved, you know. Yeah, 100%. Um, we've already been talking for a while. But I've enjoyed every single second. But I want to I know, move I'm sorry. On. Once I get started, sorry. Once no, I get started, no, I have a hard time. No, stopping. it's so good. I'm literally like, I'm trying to hold back so much from asking all of the questions that I have. And I also have to absolutely get you back on to do another episode on witches. Because I think that would just be oh, so, be so good. And, <laughs> I'd love that. But I, you talk a bit about women's bodies and especially like the womb. Um, mm -hmm. And I was wondering if you could talk a bit about your idea of like the wandering womb. What is that? How is the womb being conceptualized over time as well? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so the the wandering womb, um, it's a very old notion. You know, literally wander in the sense of like moving, right? And this idea dates back to ancient Greece, to Plato, even. And it's the idea that the womb was able to move inside the female body, so literally to wander. And the the uterus was described by by a physician, a Greek physician of the time, Areteus, as sort of an animal within an animal. So we are animals as well, which you know, lovely. But you and you can already sense that there's a lot of medical misogyny going on here. But this idea of a creature within a creature, an animal within an enemy, um, sorry, not not animal, an animal within an animal. Uh, the idea is that the womb could overheat. And if it wasn't producing babies often enough, I should add. So the womb could overheat. And then it would move 
often in search of water, humidity, fluids to cool itself down. And um, by doing so, the womb could cause blockages and problems along the way. I know that sounds completely outlandish to us today, um, even though we still say things like having a bun in the oven. So the idea of the womb as an oven is not completely lost, but it's this idea mm. that the oven would overheat, right? And look for mm. more moisture, mm. look for, for water. Um, it made a certain sense to think that within a humoral framework of understanding the body. So that's the Hippocratic idea that there were four humors in the human body blood, black bile, yellow bile, and phlegm. And they, the four of them had to be in balance for someone to be healthy. And the womb, in, in the case of women, the womb was considered key for women's health. And even though not all medical writers believed the wandering womb idea, um, it was deeply influential in Western medicine because it implied that women weren't really in control of their bodies, that the female body was somehow defective, which goes back to Aristotle, thinking that women are a lesser, more imperfect version of men who are perfect. And, um, and so the female body is just more prone to illness and imbalance. And it's all tied back to the womb. So if you think, you know, if you think that sounds crazy, because it's, it's, you know, it does sound crazy. But Think of the present and how often people say that someone did something because, you know, they're on their period, their hormones, or even the history, the long history of hysteria, which, you know, is, is something that unfortunately we, we don't really have time to cover today. But it's also deeply connected to this idea of the wandering womb and the womb that has its own whims and wills, you know. So hysteria itself comes from the Greek word for womb. And many remedies that Victorians, uh, Victorian physicians would use to treat hysteria involved compressing the ovaries, you know, some of them even pushing it down to its proper place. So there was still this idea of the wandering womb behind it. And you can see how medicine has changed, right? But there is still this underlying idea that remains that people with wombs, women and anyone else who has wombs, non-binary folks are, you know, trans men are somehow more prone to medical problems that, you know, we with wombs, we are less human, less rational. In a way, we are closer to animals. And even though this concept of the wandering womb stretches back, you know, millennia and has, of course, no medical basis, we are sort of still dealing with the consequences of this idea, I'd say. Oh, 100%. And you know what's so ironic is that although, as you said, we're kind of told that we have more medical issues I just think women's bodies historically have been so under-researched I could mm-hmm. go on a rant about medical misogyny and again that's like oh, a yes. whole other thing but mm-hmm. I was just thinking I was like huh that's so funny that they say Definitely, that about us yeah. and continue to just don't listen to women when they say they have certain issues with their body at the same time I know it's if you think of things like endometriosis or, or yeah. you know it's 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 yeah it's hard not to feel very angry about it. But yeah, I think medical misogyny has a very long and awful and sad and depressing history. And it's, you know, which is not the reason why I research it, but it's because I think it really can help shape the way we think about the body today, especially the female body and how we can understand that a lot of our assumptions come from a place. Come, They come from somewhere in history. They're not just yes. natural deductions. They're not fixed categories. It's something... Especially because if it is something that we came up with, then we can get rid of, hopefully. 
Yeah, 100%. It's like no one's idea, like no one's made in a vacuum, you know. We're just yeah. products of our environments and our parents' environments and our, you know, grandparents' environments. Yeah. You know, we're just an, an accumulation of everyone and everything, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want to be one to lighten it. And also, I think it's a good segue for anyone that's listening that's like really enjoyed what we've been talking about. So, can you talk more about your book club? Oh, yeah, definitely. Thank you for that question. So um, first thing, I promise that in my book club, I don't talk as much. I let <laughs> other people speak as well. Um, but yeah, so uh, the book club started as a part of an, a very interesting activism boot camp training that I did with Abortion Rights UK. Um, and it's also in collaboration with the Vavengers, and that's a charity that I volunteer with, and it aims to eradicate female genital mutilation. So these might seem completely unrelated and different issues, you know, female genital mutilation and abortion rights. Um, but, you know, for me, at their very core, they are questions about bodily autonomy and about informed consent. So the idea appeared, uh, the, the idea we had was for a feminist online monthly book club that would focus on bodily autonomy through novels and memoirs, through literature. So each month we have a different guest speaker who's an expert on the subject and we choose a different charity. And then we ask for people uh, when booking their tickets for a minimum donation of three pounds and that goes straight to the charity of the month, right? And and then using the book as a starting point, we talk about the issue of the month, right? So abortion, FGM, trans rights, uh, maternal mental health. And uh, the session we are having tomorrow is actually about endometriosis, which is why it was on my mind. Uh, and especially because we'll be talking about medical misogyny in connection to to the history of endometriosis. So it's something that we talked a lot about today. And that is like very dear to my heart, this idea of how the past is affecting the present. And in this book club, we, we talk about history, popular culture, not just the novel we're, we're discussing. And we do, we are happy for people to join us without having read the book, because the discussions tend to be quite broad. And also because I know people don't have time, honestly, we are all just sort of like hamsters on wheels, like I get it. So everyone is welcome to join, even if they can't commit to reading the book. And it's a nice inclusive space, you know, like it's all about building community and people are friendly and welcoming and so that's the idea of creating a safe space to talk about these things and yeah and I think it's something we really need nowadays so it's yeah everyone's welcome to join us I love that as soon as I get I've mentioned this about 50 times in the past Mm. two days and in every podcast episode but I'm I'm moving country um and I have my visa appointment tomorrow I know I know I'm so scared that I don't have the right documents and they're going to reject me right at the embassy but um but as soon as that's there and I'm settled in France trust me Julia I will be signing (laughs) up to that book club because I will have plenty of time to read and I'll be turning up to those discussions and I will link it in the show notes as well because I think it's a lovely idea and a great community to be a part of thank you Thank you. I really hope you you join us. It would be really incredible to, you know, have your input and everything. And and congratulations on France. That's so exciting. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I'm going to be sure in everything pair, will work so. out like Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but I'm going to be in a pair, so it'll be so interesting to be like around children. I'm never around yeah. children. Mm. So, we'll have to see how I feel about that. Um, yeah. but my final question that I ask everyone is what impression would you like to leave on the world? That's such a good question to, you know, just end off with. So um, 
I think for me, as a feminist historian, the main impression that I would like to leave is that just because things are a certain way now, it doesn't mean that they have to stay that way. I think we, as realists and as people who like reading things and thinking about things, I think it's very easy to get disheartened. I think it's very natural as well. But I think there's hope, you know, and the reason that I that I think that is because things weren't always the way that they are. So if medieval judges could be lenient to women who had had abortions because they were desperately poor, they were full of children, they simply didn't want more children, those judges could be merciful and lenient. And that should teach contemporary judges something, I think. Maybe they should think twice before condemning someone. So that's that's my that's my hope really that that's the impression i would like to leave in the world i think that things that are socially and culturally constructed can be and many of them should be deconstructed and i think history can really help i love that and i completely agree i also think it's ridiculous that anyone should tell anyone else what they should or ought to do with their body like yeah but anyway another for I mean, another episode. it sounds insane when you think about it right but, exactly yeah. like <laughs> oh but they're just products of their time they've been influenced to think that way you know what That's i mean true. it's yeah. like it's a big thing um mm-hmm. which is putting it lightly but thank you yeah. so so much for being on the podcast i've loved every second if people want to reach <laughs> out where can they find you oh so you can find me on tiktok making very silly videos about um like historical curiosities and medical things so on tiktok on instagram and youtube um julia martin's history and i'm also on twitter um yeah just complaining about about <laughs> books that i don't like or, or saying nice things about the books that i do like so yeah and thank Perfect. you so much for having me rebecca i really i really enjoyed it and i apologize if i couldn't stop talking it's just that I care about these things so deeply that sometimes it's hard to realize that I've been talking nonstop for 10 minutes. So no. sorry about that. Thank you.